Chapter 20 of the Queen of Appalachia This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit riverrocks.org. Recording by Kualada The Queen of Appalachia by Joe H. Borders Chapter 20 A Garden of Eden the queen had scarcely touched the ground when consciousness returned and she sat up, instantly, recognizing her fair land. Pardon my weakness, Mr. Thornton, she said, rising, and let me hasten to bid you welcome to my dear old Appalachia. Paul tried to make a suitable reply. He murmured something, but he had just caught sight of his surroundings and he was so filled with surprise and admiration that he was struck dumb. It was a lightning change from a rough, rocky canyon to a garden of Eden. Possibly there are more beautiful scenes, but I am ready to go on record that nowhere on earth does there exist a land so rich in loveliness, exclaimed Paul. Oh, queen, why did you keep this from me? No wonder you long to return to this enchanted land. Well do I remember how I pitied you when you manifest such a longing to return to what I supposed was a cold, barren cave. The queen laughed and rejoiced over Paul's surprise and enthusiasm, and her gladsome face was in keeping with the landscape. This is one of the proudest moments of my life. No, Mr. Thornton, I told you nothing of the beauties of Appalachia as touching her fields, meadows, and gardens, her groves, orchards, and vineyards, her forests of plants, shrubs, and trees, her grasses, flowers, and vines, and her beautiful avenues. I wanted to give you a genuine surprise. Well, you have succeeded, replied he. Our costumes seem out of place amidst all this grandeur. I feel like a tramp at a carnation show, looking at his soiled garment. I will arrange it. Trust to me. Await you here until my return, she said, running away. Paul threw himself on the velvety carpet of green, watching the fleeting woman until she disappeared in the dense shrubbery. He then dragged in the beauties of the scene and his thoughts suddenly went back to the early morning. Once more he and the queen were making their way through that lonesome underground cavern. Once more he was climbing that impromptu stairway, step by step, and finally reached the valley of grass and flowers. The atmosphere was thoroughly impregnate with a rich perfume, which fanned him to sleep and to dream of the day's adventures. When Paul awoke, he was lying in a hammock in the midst of a dense forest of peculiar trees whose leaves were like palm leaf fans. The queen was bending over him with her face so close that he could feel her hot breath, and he awoke with the consciousness that her lips had touched his. She was faultlessly dressed, and with the exception of the long cloak, her appearance was very much like that of the young lady he had rescued from the river. Come with me, she said after an informal greeting, and he followed her into the house. 
Here in this apartment, stopping at the door down the hallway, you will find a change of clothing. If anything is lacking, call me," she said. He entered the room and closed the door. A gentleman saluted him with extravagant courtesy as he entered, and took charge of him. Supposing he was a valet, he made good use of him. His services were found indispensable before Paul's toilet was complete. He hesitated to put on such an elaborate costume, thinking the queen was overdoing the thing. But he finally submitted, being informed by the valet that it was the prevailing costume of Appalachia, and why in Appalachia he would be an Appalachian. The queen came running to meet him as soon as he made his appearance on the veranda. Are you ready, my lord? She asked, looking pleased. Instead of a direct answer, Paul took her arm, and they walked towards the hammock. My dear queen, let us discuss plans before executing them. Possibly you have outlined a policy that we are to pursue. My plans are simple enough. We will go direct to my home in the outskirts of the city, and then to the palace," said she. Home first, characteristic of your gentle, loving nature. Very well. Now I would ask if you think it would be prudent to make yourself known to your parents. Suddenly, you tell me they are quite old. Your sudden appearance would give them a great surprise, and I very much doubt the wisdom of such a move. Could you not precede me and prepare them for my coming? Asked she. This is my plan. Vow yourself, and we will make them a visit, introducing ourselves as hailing from some outlying district of your country. This will gain an entrance, and then we will govern ourselves according to the circumstances. Bear in mind this one fact, sweetheart: you are mourned as dead, and your place at the palace is no doubt held by another. I have no doubt, but that the woman who pushed you over the cliffs is now the recognized queen of Appalachia. Understand me, sweetheart. This is merely a supposition on my part, but we are not advised what has transpired since the memorable day. I see," she said. "Your plans are mine, Mister Thornton. But let us hasten. I am dying to see my mother and father. And thus agreed. They took their leave. The house they just left was occupied by a wealthy family who was spending the day in the city, and the servants were in complete ignorance concerning matters of royalty, as the queen learned by her first and only question. Paul and the queen wended their way through mountains of flowers, passing into a magnificent grass-carpeted avenue, each side of which was terraced and banked with grass. Studded with roses of every color imaginable, that sparkled like diamonds, which led them into larger and, if possible, a more gorgeously decked avenue, one of the main thoroughfares. On each side were trees, the bodies of which were completely hidden by the great mass of hanging or climbing vines, and every vine a flower garden of itself. Now, my lord. We will wait here for a through train," she said, smiling, as they reached an exquisite retreat that had attracted his attention. Being a novel, tasked cover depot, tastefully adorned with the colors of the country 
and supplied with cozy seats that were inviting. A true train, repeated Paul half aloud. He was not a little astonished, but he was gradually becoming accustomed to surprises, and expected them as a matter of course. But the idea of a true train in a cave was a novel one. Let us cross over to the opposite side. She began consulting her timepiece and leading the way, and I will explain one of our methods of transportation while waiting for the train. On reaching the point designated, Paul was shown what he took to be a moving sidewalk, about four feet in width. This is one of our first public improvements," said she, adding, "Bear in mind, my lord, that here in Appalachia you will find many inventions, the equal of your country, and possibly some in advance of it. This ancient mode of rapid transit was among the first, and for that reason." Has never been abandoned in this section of the kingdom. I think I understand its operation," spoke he. "We have a similar invention used principally in parks and at the larger pressure resorts." The queen glanced up quickly as if surprised, but said nothing. "Why not get on board?" he suggested, making a movement as if to carry out the idea. "Stay!" she cried, grasping his arm. And arresting his progress, would you kill yourself, my lord? Blushing in his confusion, he made a more careful examination of the mechanical contrivance. When he was quickly convinced that his American plaything, the moving sidewalk, was not in it with this rapidly moving train. Jerusalem said, "Paul retreating, how the deuce do you board the thing?" There is a two-minute stop every half hour," she explained. "Time is up now, and not a car in sight. Oh, here comes the next best thing!" she cried joyfully. The sidewalk gradually slowed up, and presently came to a full stop. And almost immediately in front of them appeared a basket-shaped carriage, made for two persons, which they lost no time in entering. And two minutes later. They were going up the avenue like the wind. The basket car was built like an airship and glided through the air at the rate of two hundred miles an hour, making it impossible for Paul to gain any knowledge of the country through which he was passing. And its first stop after a thirty-minute ride landed our two passengers at a point, the surroundings and appearance of which were very similar to that described. Here, Paul and the Queen left their cozy car and ascended to the verdant platform. They were now in sight of the city and within a short distance of her home. She led the way, heavily veiled, across the avenue to the central station, where they met hundreds of people rushing here and there as if in search of outgoing trains, resembling a depot scene in some American city. Pushing their way through the jostling crowd to the other side of the artistically thatched waiting room, the queen paused as if in doubt. When a knightly young man made his appearance, "I want a suburban car, West," she told him. "This way, Madame," replied the young man, leading them to a certain car containing a number of empty seats. "Lives in one minute," he added, and hurried away. 
They were very seated when it began moving, arriving near her home in a few minutes. This car, Paul observed, was medium-sized in comparison with others at Central Station. It had three wheels in the center, underneath the seats, which ran in a solitary groove, while overhead was a single center wheel also running in a groove. The wheels were about half inch wide and not over twelve inches in circumference. It contained six cushion-seated chairs, and on the floor in front of each chair was a tiny little brake that could be operated by merely touching it when the car would start or stop instantly. Arriving at the ground in front of the picturesque resident, so well known to Queen Olivet, they entered and started down the moss-lined walk that led up to the front entrance. Paul was struck with awe to notice on the door an emblem of death, and he paused on the threshold. It is for me, she whispered. Have you a card? Every costume worn in Appalachia is provided with a pocket in which is carried a card case. Paul was in ignorance of this custom and in answer to the request began fumbling in his pockets, American fashion. Never mind, I have it, she added, producing a card case with a pencil attached. Write the names, Paul and Dover and Sister, she said, extending a small piece of excellent cardboard. Complying with her request, Paul returned the card, which she placed in a slot on the facing of the door, and touched a button that was found immediately under it, when there was a faint echo of the chime of a bell and the card disappeared. Presently, the door swung open and they were admitted to an inner chamber, just off from the front hall, which Paul learned afterward was the reception room, a very pretty and tastily furnished apartment with carved walls. My mother, she whispered to Paul at the first opportunity, they were most kindly received, the father appearing presently shaking hands and otherwise extending cordial greeting. We came to pay our respects and to inquire for the latest tidings of our dear queen, Paul ventured to say. A sob from the mother in reply came pretty near proving disastrous to their plans. Deception at such a crisis seeming out of place to the queen, and she found it difficult to play her part. We have heard nothing from Ollie, but we still retained a hope, spoke her father. She will come back. I know she will, sobbed her mother. They say she is dead, but somehow I can't believe it. No, I will not believe it. My girl queen will return. It was a great honor to crown Ollie a queen, but no woman was better fitted to occupy the throne than she. But if they will give her back to us, they can have the crown. My friends, you are right. Queen Olivet will come back to you. She's not dead. Take the crepe from the door and be of good cheer. We ring to you sweet consolation. She lives, spoke Paul cheerfully. Yes, thank God, murmured the queen. Oh, sir, cried the mother, gladness breaking through her sorrow, the father on his feet. What is it you tell us? She lives, you say? My sweet girl lives. 
Where is she? Speak. Yes, she is alive and happy. Rest assured of that," replied he. "We come to you for information. Tell us the result of that memorable rapids excursion to Angelina. What was her explanation?" How frightful screams attracted the attention of our people, who hastened to her side, where they found her apparently prostrated, wringing her hands and moaning in dreadful agony of mind. Began the mutter. When she was quieted, she told them of Olivet's plunge into the awful river. The excitement following these horrible events was intense. The news from the tragedy soon reached the city. And to every portion of the kingdom, people lined the crypts overlooking the falls, hoping to catch a glimpse of their queen. But nothing came of it, and no one dared to venture into the canyon. The general verdict being that our beloved girl was drowned. Yes, that was the universal verdict," added the venerable father. "But we held to the idea that she escaped. How we did not pretend to explain." For time, foul play was hinted at, and there yet remains a feeling of that character throughout the kingdom. This idea gained additional credence when Angelina's friends began proceeding to place her on the throne. And did they succeed? said Paul eagerly. Why, yes. Did you not know that within three days after the accident, a proclamation was issued, and thirty days thereafter, Angelina was elected and crowned queen. Did she have opposition? Yes, opposition, but no opponent. It seems strange you know nothing of the affair. Looking at him with suspicion, I want to beg your pardon, father," spoke Paul. "I neglect to tell you that I have not been in Appalachian Kingdom since the accident." But for him," added Olivet, removing her veil, "your Ollie would not be enjoying life. Don't you know me, mother?" End of chapter twenty, a garden of Eden, recording by Holada.